This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. New York City is the epicenter of America's coronavirus outbreak. A few days ago, our colleague, investigative reporter Joe Palazzolo, put on protective gear and went inside the biggest hospital in Brooklyn. I was there to meet with uh, the head of emergency medicine, his name Dr. John Marshall. He's a bald guy. He's wearing his surgical mask. Everyone is wearing surgical masks. And he's coiled tight. You can tell he's juggling about 17 million different tasks at once. I've been in the hospital every day this month, basically. I mean, it's, I, haven't, I haven't spent a full day at home since March 1st. Um, he is really the guy he's overseeing the department that is seeing the flood of patients come in. At the same time, Dr. Marshall is trying to reassure his staff that, for now, they have what they need to care for those patients. They were coming up and asking their boss for supplies. When are we getting the vents? When are we getting breathing machines, the high-flow oxygen machines? We got more high-flows coming. We have more high-flows coming. We got more vents coming. They wanted to know when the respiratory support devices were coming. Uh, we just, I just, he literally was just downstairs with us. We just picked up 15 more from Hutzolo. They're going to bring 25 more. They brought us 10 last night. So we've got about 30 on this. We have about 30 extra right now. Good. Great. Wow. So, all right. Thank you. Okay. He was trying to reassure them. The margins are really thin though. So with the ventilators, they had 30 extra, which is not a lot when you're saying the entire hospital has 30 ventilators left that are not in use. That's pretty scary. Today on the show, how one hospital in the epicenter of the outbreak is dealing with its ventilator shortage and what a continued shortage could mean for the life and death decisions doctors have to make on the front lines. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Tuesday, March 31st. New York City is still weeks away from the peak of the coronavirus crisis. And yet, the hospital Joe visited, Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, is already filling up with COVID-19 patients. This is the emergency department, so like horseshoe-shaped? So you all right going through this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good. On the one side of the horseshoe, Dr. Marshall called it the hot zone, and that's people who have the hospital has confirmed have coronavirus. And on the other side of the horseshoe is the cold zone, and that's the people that they're trying to rule out as being infected. The jury's still out on whether or not they have the virus. How many patients would you say there were? In the ER, there were dozens, easily dozens. It was full. All of them were suspected to have COVID-19? Yeah, either all of whom actually had it or were suspected to have it. The patients were... Especially on the hot zone, they were listless. You could hear some of them coughing. And of course, all of the staff are suited up, right? They're wearing respirator masks, which, you know, cover their face. They're wearing goggles. It's really impersonal. And there are no visitors. So patients, they're not talking to anyone. None of their family is around them. 
It looks a little empty right now. We, we're not, we can't allow any visitors in. We're really trying to minimize disease transmission either to the visitors or from the visitors. And we're just trying to keep everybody healthy. So. Right. I mean, these are people who are clearly suffering. Most of them were reclining on beds, right? It's not like they were lying flat or sleeping and waiting. You're waiting to figure out where you're going to go next. And so it has this kind of purgatory-like feeling to it. Those COVID-19 patients languishing in the purgatory of the emergency room were stuck there because the hospital didn't have another place to put them. Maimonides has more than 700 beds, but in recent weeks, they've been trying to increase their capacity by 200% in order to care for the incoming surge of coronavirus patients. That also means that they have to expand their equipment to support their patients as well. Have they said how many ventilators they might need at the peak of the pandemic? At one point, Dr. Marshall had said, we usually maybe need 100 ventilators, right? Now we need 500. The 100 to 500 was pretty stark to me. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo estimated last week that the state as a whole could need an additional 30 to 40,000 ventilators. And that resource gap is concerning because ventilators are crucial. From what we know about the coronavirus, in the most serious cases, it attacks the lungs. When that happens, the lungs become inflamed. And according to doctors, some patients' own immune systems flare up, producing a lot of white blood cells. Those cells head straight to the inflamed lungs to fight off the virus, which in many patients can cause even more lung damage and make it even more difficult to breathe. That space in a COVID patient's lungs that once held air is now full of inflammation, fluid, debris, and pus. And the more damaged the lungs become, the less room they have for swapping out the carbon dioxide in your body for oxygen in the air. And so, patients need assistance to breathe. And at what point does a patient need to go on a ventilator? So at some hospitals, the protocols that are being used is when your oxygen level reaches a certain kind of critical point, then they decide that you need to be intubated. When the patient is intubated, a tube is placed through the mouth and into the windpipe. That tube is then attached to the ventilator, which pushes air and oxygen into the lungs. The ventilator breathes for the patient and keeps the lungs from collapsing. But of course, you can't use a ventilator to help a patient if you don't have one. And so for Maimonides, that means trying to get more. Right now, it's kind of a free-for-all where private hospitals, private hospital systems, municipalities, states, public hospital systems are all vying to get ventilators. And then they're getting some from the federal government as well. At Maimonides, they're buying refurbished ones, so used from suppliers. But they're also in talks with three different distributors to try and get new ones. Hospitals across the country are all doing the same thing, ordering new ones. And the huge spike in demand is creating a massive shortage. The private sector is scrambling to produce more, but ventilators are not easy machines to make. One major manufacturer has tried to help by releasing the design specifications for one of its ventilators. Those documents show that there are hundreds of parts, over a dozen alarms that need to be built, on top of the computer coding and circuitry. And creating a ventilator is a labor-intensive process— Ventilators are largely hand-built at small workstations. So while companies are trying to ramp up production, it's going to take time before they can really mass-produce anything. In the meantime, hospitals like Maimonides are looking for other ways to treat COVID patients, 
ways to open up the lungs without using a ventilator at all. In some cases, that means leaving people off ventilators if doctors think a patient can handle it. They are really trying to push it to let patients ride it out as long as possible before intubating. One patient, she was kind of behind the glass in the ICU unit, and she was lying flat on her stomach. Her physician, his Dr. Cameron Kyle Sedell, he is kind of a tall, lanky guy. He's like very excited, like gesticulating as he's talking about this patient. Most places right now, okay, I'm knocks gonna... on the glass, gives her a thumbs up, she gives it back. And he's really excited because she's resisted so far intubation, going on a ventilator. Why did she want to ride it out? Being intubated is scary. You can't talk, you can't really move or do anything. You're you're immobilized completely, and you are often sedated. So it's really enormously unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And so you can see why people would not want to do it. And she seems to be doing well, and he is very pleased with the progress, and he's hoping that what happens with her and another patient may be able to inform their treatment algorithm, and so then they can, without jeopardizing patient safety, obviously, that's what they're looking out for, try new things to keep people off of ventilators longer. Hospitals are trying out other machines before using ventilators, like high-flow oxygen masks, or even repurposing anesthesia and sleep apnea machines into ventilators. And in some cases, hospitals are putting two patients on one ventilator. But this equipment scarcity is starting to force hospitals to come up with plans for what to do if doctors have to start making hard decisions about who gets what resources. What if you have to make a decision between someone in their mid-80s with a terminal illness who is using a ventilator to stay alive and a younger patient with COVID who desperately needs it? That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account, giving ambitious companies like yours the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Welcome back. As hospitals try to figure out how to deal with medical equipment shortages, doctors are quickly realizing that they may have to start choosing which patients get what resources, especially when it comes to ventilators. Hospitals call this medical rationing. And the idea is that when doctors are facing a shortage, whether it's a shortage of a ventilator or a doctor's time, they need to use their resources in whatever way will save the most lives. But in the process, saving the most lives might mean letting some people die. Hospitals are trying to establish systems before doctors are faced with actually having to choose one patient over another. 
In the U.S., hospitals are required to have a team of people on staff who can help design these policies. And often on those teams, there's a bioethicist, like Arthur Kaplan at NYU's School of Medicine. When you're rationing, you know you're going to do some harm to somebody. So that's the beginning point. It isn't do no harm. It's when harm has to happen because somebody can't get a resource. What's the uh, most just thing to do? And we generally answer that by saying to try and maximize the benefit that you can get from the resource. Arthur says these types of questions don't just come up during a pandemic. It's especially an issue for people who need an organ transplant. When the organ transplant field took off, there were many more people who wanted organs than could get them. Not everybody can get a liver, sadly. Not everybody gets a heart. People die every day without getting those organs. And so we had to make up rules about how to distribute the scarce resource. Well, we would beg people, and still do, to donate. We never have had enough. And so rationing is omnipresent in the field of transplant. In the same way that not everyone who needs a kidney can get one, how do you decide which coronavirus patients can get ventilators when you don't have enough? In pandemics, you're trying to figure out who's going to do the best if they get on a ventilator. So you're trying to see if someone is 87 years old and has four underlying diseases and just had two heart attacks. They're probably not the best candidate to get a bed in a ventilator as opposed to someone who doesn't have that kind of a huge at-risk-to-fail profile. What are the big ethical questions about treating these patients that you're thinking through right now? The toughest issue is trying to make sure that everything is not just, meaning what rules you have to give things out, but what's fair. And by fairness, I mean making sure that everybody who should gets a chance to be considered for a ventilator or a bed. It shouldn't matter what gender you are. It shouldn't matter whether you have insurance. It shouldn't matter your particular race or ethnicity. So people, I think, want everyone to have a chance. In theory, that's the baseline. Everyone should get a chance. But we expect that soon this won't be possible. Our colleague, Chris Weaver, has been talking to hospitals and policymakers around the country about the plans they're working on now for rationing ventilators. The plans are, at best, grisly ones. One of them in New York, which has been kind of widely emulated around the country, is like a 200-and-something page document that lays out both what the protocols should be and a lot of the kind of ethical and intellectual justifications for coming up with them. So this New York template uses a color coding system. It asks committees of doctors, triage committees that cause them, to evaluate each patient who might need a ventilator and give them a color code. Reds are people who are likely to benefit from getting a ventilator, you know, likely to survive with one. And they get priority, the people most likely to be saved. The next step down is yellows. And that's a group about whom the doctors are less certain. They might make it with a ventilator or they might not. So they only get a ventilator after all of the reds are served. They're basically asked to wait in line. The blues in this system are people who are going to die anyway. People that this group of doctors decide are basically beyond hope and they're not going to get ventilators. And then finally, there are greens, and these are the lucky ones who doctors have decided are probably going to make it whether they get a ventilator or not, so they don't get one either. So if you're extremely sick, you want to be classified as a red? You want to be a red, that's right. 
And what do they do if there aren't enough ventilators to even give them to all the people who are reds who would benefit from it? When there's a group of people who are all clinically comparable in this red category, there's a number of different paths that can be taken. And this is where things start to get like pretty dicey. Every hospital has different metrics, meaning that patients might get treated differently depending on where they live. But there are some general factors that doctors consider. One of those factors is age. Doctors could prioritize younger patients over older ones. Then there's what a patient does for a living. Here's Arthur Kaplan again. Are they providing health care? Are they involved in the healthcare system? Are they a doctor, a nurse, a technician, someone who cleans the hospital, someone who makes the food, makes the place run? Because you want that work staff there. If we don't have the personnel, it doesn't matter how many ventilators and beds we have. There's no one to man them. So you're trying to rescue those people and get them back to work so they can save others. This idea of possibly prioritizing a healthcare worker is sometimes referred to as weighing the patient's social usefulness. And it's an area where the decision-making is exceptionally complicated and fraught. But there was one thing that Arthur was very clear should never be part of the decision-making process. Money. Don't want money to drive it. Now, if you said to me, is it possible that money would make a difference? Sure. I can imagine the 1% getting in a jet and saying things are bad in Manhattan. I think I'll fly to the Mayo Clinic. Or maybe I'll try to get in to a facility in Texas where they haven't had a big surge yet. That's an inequity that I deplore but it's one that's been in the healthcare system forever. I don't know that people should be shocked to find out that the very rich have opportunities that the poor don't. But ultimately, if there are more sick patients than there are resources, doctors have one last resort. Here's Chris. The way to do it is to pick one of them at random and not just go with the one who showed up first or has been waiting the longest. How exactly that's done, it's not like there's a software program that everybody is using, for instance, that randomly picks your patient when you've got a spare ventilator. We talked to a number of doctors and ethicists about this, and one of them proposed that it could basically come down to something as simple as drawing straws or picking numbers out of hats. All of this can be incredibly difficult for family members who may have to be told that their loved ones don't make the cut for life-saving care. Part of Arthur's job is to counsel doctors on how they communicate with the families of their patients and also to counsel the doctors themselves. How do you counsel doctors about the guilt that they feel having to carry out those choices? You know, it's It's a terrible and miserable thing, and I don't think we'll see the impact of that for many months. Even when they get home at night, they know. They have to make these choices. It'll be like PTSD. But I think we better be prepared for is the rebound, like we do with people who are in combat, who get deployed, come back, and then it hits them how bad, miserable, terrible it was. A day after we spoke with Art, the medical system he works with sent out an email to emergency room doctors. It acknowledged that the hospital is working on guidelines for how to allocate ventilators, but said the emergency department couldn't afford to wait. The email said that the hospital would give emergency room doctors the, quote, sole discretion to place patients on ventilators, and that doctors should, quote, think more critically about who we intubate. 
That's all for today, Tuesday, March 31st. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.